2: Hello and welcome to your book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. I'm really excited to share this episode with the wonderful Lauren Groff. But firstly, if you're listening to this on October 23rd, this is the last week to buy my latest novel, Limelight, as a 99p Kindle mega deal. Christmas is coming. You can order a signed copy of Limelight or any of my books, including Insatiable, Careering, The Sisterhood and How to Be a Grown-Up from the Margate Bookshop. They deliver all across the UK. Listeners in the US can buy the brand new edition of How to Be a Grown-Up, which is published by Urano. It's also the last week to sign up for my writing course, Write Like a Reader. At the time of recording, there are still a couple of places available. And if you'd like to talk more about reading, writing and your own creative work, you'll want my Substack, creativeconfidenceclinic.substack.com or you can email the creativeconfidenceclinic at Com. I'd love to see you there. You can join me for conversations about books, craft talk and cheerleading. Now to Lauren Groff. Lauren is a novelist and short story writer whose work is hugely acclaimed. She has been garlanded with awards. She's a frequent national book finalist and her fans include Stephen King, Britt Bennett, Marion Keyes and For What It's Worth Me. We're celebrating her astonishing new book, The Vaster Wilds. Lauren is a writer's reader. She describes reading as her main job. We talked about sexy books, precocious reading and the ultimate creative meditation. Huge thanks to Waterstones Gower Street for letting us record the episode in your lovely shop. You might be able to hear a bit of London traffic rumbling by. So, this is a question that puts you on the spot a bit, because one of the things I really loved about the Vaster Wilds is, in spite of everything, I think there are cosy pastures. When fish are caught and when shelter is built... As a reader, I found that so warming and so satisfying. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if there are any books that make you feel that way, whether they're books where that's happening kind of amidst panic and violence and drama, or if it's a more general kind of Little House in the Big Woods vibe.
1: Oh, well, there are a lot of books that more generally have those uh, cozy vibes for me. Um The one that came to mind when you said in the midst of the drama is actually weirdly War and Peace. That moment in the midst of battle when I think it's Prince Alexei um, falls down. He's struck or something, he falls down and he's looking up, and there are bullets whizzing by, and he just sort of sees the clouds. (laughs) This is. Beautiful moment of just rest and peace and understanding what it means to be alive in this time when he does, he's not quite sure if he's, he's still alive. So there's that incredible passage. But, um, a book that I will go to for a larger understanding of just comfort, uh, is Middle March by George Eliot. There's something about the golden, honeyed nature of her wisdom that just you you just live within it for the however many hundreds of pages that it takes to read Middlemarch and then you know you're reborn into like greater wisdom and calm somehow I've never read it for shame I (gasps) think because I've been so
2: daunted by it but how did you meet it when did you first read it did someone recommend it to you
1: oh my gosh so my mother was never a giant reader when I was a child Uh, she she loves books but she works really hard. and she's the sort of person who I think she may have a little bit of ADHD because she um, when she's given an option, she will have a project. she will paint a windowsill, right. And so at one point when I when it became clear that I was a giant reader and 10, 11, 12 years old, she went to her shelf where she had all of the books from college and she pulled down Middlemarch and she gave it to me. And so I do associate Middlemarch with my mother and I actually don't didn't remember that moment until now. Um, but yeah, I got it from her.
2: Oh, that's really lovely.
1: (laughs) She read it. Was it a book that she'd
2: enjoyed? Oh, she loved
1: it. Yeah. She saw me reading, I think it was Jane Austen at the time. She said, oh, if that interests you, you know, I know of another incredible English woman writer that you might want to read. Oh, and that feeling is not at that age where an enormous book isn't a scary challenge you think yes right for my buck right exactly no and and you feel so smart reading it in fourth grade I read um Gone with the Wind which I know is a piece of tripe but uh at the time it was it was the biggest book I ever attempted and it was something like a thousand pages and I felt very proud of myself for finishing it so I I was you know an egotistical reader even then Well, I
2: feel as though Gone with the Wind is rarely mentioned as part of that classic canon. And I think it absolutely is because it shaped the imagination of so many writers and it's so full of these big emotions and big themes. And I think people are a little embarrassed by it. Would they be embarrassed about it if it had been written by (laughs) a dude?
1: I think they would be, though, because it is a little bit embarrassing. I mean, there are a lot of... Moments in that book that in the 21st century do not seem okay. I mean, um, I don't know. I mean, I think we have a lot of literary snobbery and a lot of shame in America about our literary heritage because it's very short. Uh, So I think um, this book, because it has a love story at the center, because it's so sexy, because of Clark Gable and Vivian Lee, um, it became something other than, I think, think you maybe you're right maybe maybe in another 150 years we'll look back without the shame and maybe see the effects of the book on the world maybe maybe that's what we want to to pay attention to is that love story what you're responding to when you're in fourth grade had you seen the movie i had not seen the movie no i didn't know anything about the book except that it was it's set during the civil war and it really um Really stirred my imagination, right? In fourth grade, you're just a baby. You don't understand anything about humans or like the human nature, and so coming across Scarlet, who's this larger than life personality, right? She's uh, she's bold. She's mean. Um, she does terrible things, right? She's actually a very good heroine. Uh, and suddenly I saw this person in this society where she was supposed to be kept docile because Southern women are do not speak out. Um, and having this large grandiosity um, was really kind of amazing. It's, it kind of blew my mind. Um, and then the love story, of course, uh, was also deeply compelling for my fourth grade mind. I think
2: a lot about those big love stories we respond to and things like... Um you know stories like Jane Eyre and even yeah. you know in Jane Austen where as I think you know young smart girls and women we gravitate to those stories mm-hmm. and it takes I mean to be honest it's taken me decades but a lot of those are, hold on a minute <laughs> that was a toxic horror <laughs> bad man and marriage is simply is the a only viable economic yeah. proposition <laughs> yes, it yeah. wasn't a love match at all
1: <laughs> no absolutely no it was horrible but uh, you know of course we are grown and raised in a, a web of um of understanding that it takes a very long time to sort of make our way out of so I'm proud of us for having gotten that far right absolutely and <laughs> yeah. even
2: when in real life it was very difficult to marry for love that mm-hmm. women still wrote about that and yearned yes. for it I think yeah. that's really exciting I and exciting so writing to kind of heal and or escape i guess
1: i love that take that um love matches are a sign of female autonomy that's really beautiful that's a that's a smart way to put it
2: i love this image of you as the reader in your family Mm -hmm. and the sort of proper book addict when did that Take hold. Can you remember the first book you read on your own and you thought, yeah. This is it. This is for me. Uh,
1: yeah. So um I have an older brother who's only sixteen months older older than I am. And he is a the sort of person who will suck all the air out of every room that you have ever been in. He's very loud, it's very opinionated. Um when he speaks, somebody else speaks. Uh so I took the to books really early as a way of just being able to control my world and to be able to um to sit apart and and probably deal with my anxiety so I was a reader from I think four years old the first book I read was a little bear book I don't know if you have these here they're these beautiful I want to say either early 20th century or late 19th century um line drawing books with little bear and his friends and there's this one moment I remember reading um carrots potatoes peas and tomatoes and I read the words, and that was the first time I actually had that, that shock of uh, recognition that the words that I had memorized are actually the words on the page. So um, it was pretty early for me just because I wanted to escape family dynamics.
2: I love that it's, just, it's understanding a secret code, isn't it? Those memories are just figuring it out. And when you realize as well, oh, and it's not just this book.
1: It's all of them. It's all of them. You have the secret code. Yeah. No, it's so mysterious and wonderful. Especially so I'm from a very tiny town of under 2,000 people. Suddenly, I had the entire world opened up, right? It was. It's like the library was a portal to Narnia, right? It was really the most extraordinary thing that could, can happen to a child is getting literacy and being allowed um, to just discover whatever books you wanted to discover. And I read voraciously... I read um, in a Catholic manner, everything I could come across, right? Things that were not appropriate in any way. What would surprise (laughs) us in that list? I'd love to hear about
2: the the weird (laughs) things that popped up.
1: (laughs) Um, I think I probably have talked about this before, but um, I was deeply into Clan of the Cave Bears. Really, really.
2: These <laughs> books have come up on the podcast before. Am I right in thinking they're, um, oh my god, like quite erotic?
1: <laughs> oh, they're massively erotic, but it's caveman sex, so it's so weird, right? And it's, um, yes, it was the first understanding I had of any kind of sexual anything, and it was like really brutal and horrible, and that—that's what I, I guess, like I thought it this activity that people did was right because of these books my um my dad saw me rereading clan of the cape bears didn't know what was in it and he went out and bought me the second book in the series which was very Conflicted. <laughs> I was really conflicted when i read the book because i was really grateful to him but also like ooh, this is really gross and my dad gave it to me and i was having a really hard moment with that book um yeah no that was a very strange book that i picked off my parents shelves i also picked up um, a bunch of philip roth when i was really young um and he is unstinting when it comes to sex for sure um there was this Uh, Aesop's Fables, that was drawn by a very famous 1960s line artist, but he put like the genitals very um, squarely in the center of the book, and I I remember reading it almost like trying to figure out what these things are on the page. Um, uh, Very young, like five or six years old. So there are a lot of books that my parents just let let us read because you know I think they did the right thing. I mean I think they gave us enough of a understanding um to come to them if we were confused and then they trusted us to 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 have our own like ability to deal with the things that we read
2: I think yeah. as well, the number of times when I go back and read something that I read for the first time when yeah. I was very young, I thought, I do not remember this no. at all.
1: No, it's true.
2: But then I reread uh, Bonjour Tristesse a couple of years ago. Yes,
1: I just reread that. Oh, for yeah, me? yeah, yeah, like about a month ago.
2: Yeah. Because oh, wow. I was going to say, yeah. I remember loving it so much. Yeah. I think I would have been about 12 or 13 and yeah. very much the right age for it. And in my memory, There was loads of sex. And all this reread, I was like, where did the sex go? Right, it
1: was almost not there, not on the page at all. No, you're right, it was more of an erotic book than like a sexual book, for sure. Yeah, it's very small too. It's really short. In the edition I read, there
2: was another one of her stories with it, which I don't think I had read before. And I don't think a lot really happens. It's just a a young woman (laughs) and an older man. But there's an amazing line I love where she's really grumpy and they're staying in a hotel somewhere fabulous in the south of France. And it's all got a bit of a sort of like... Uh, Goddard feel to it and he says something like you know you're in a terrible mood and there's nothing that will help you beyond luxury and alcohol I'm <laughs> in that mood so.
1: <laughs> oh yeah that's
2: beautiful when do you read are you it sounds like you're someone who still has a reading habit and that's what you do when you need mm. to be with the book but do you, have you ever found it difficult to make time for it? Have you always right?
1: No I don't have another job, this is my only job so reading is my first job and then writing is my second one so I read every day, all day long um, if I'm going for a run I'm listening to an audiobook. unless I have to think through something in the work itself and then I listen to my own labored breath <laughs> um, if I can't work well in the morning when I get up and go up to uh, work I, I will read because that's also part of writing and I read read before bed as well because screens make me insane and I can't sleep if I have a screen like four hours before bed so I, I'm genuinely reading all the time I read about 300 books a year or something around there
2: I do think that is such an important part of writing mm-hmm. and I always want to talk about it you you cannot begin to write unless you know you know it's read so everything and like so read true. great books and you yeah. know and read bad books read the sort of the high quality serious things yes so read Gone with the Wind all the 2023 version of Gone with the Wind because
1: we need that. We do, absolutely. Well, I think you're right, right? I mean, I think that... It's probably it's just a random figure, but I do think about a thousand books go into writing a single book, right? You have to have read a lot. You have to have built up that foundation of understanding how to tell a story, um, all of the many options that you have, right? Um, And and I guess to see into other people's minds, the way that books allow you to see into other people's minds, uh, enough, Um, so before you can actually set out and write the the beautiful book that. Is lurking in you. I 100% agree.
2: Do you know a book um, it's an English book, an English writer in the sort of early 20th century possibly a little bit earlier than that um, Diary of a Provincial Lady by E.M. Delafield. No I don't. It's super fun it's like Bridget Jones but sort of a hundred <laughs> years ago and it's just very, 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 very funny diary entries. I cannot the wait. Of, she, they will have it here she's a kind of I suppose a Upperish middle class woman, um, who she's a writer, mm-hmm. and I think it's sort of fairly autobiographical, but it's sort of the managing the household and the grumpy husband, <laughs> and she's got a cook that she's always having a fight with. And, but when I read that, and I think I tried to read it when I was a teenager, and mm-hmm. I didn't really feel it, or I didn't really get it. Mm-hmm. And I came back and read it quite recently, and mm-hmm. there are lots of books up until mm-hmm. wartime, which is really lovely and really f- weirdly for a war, it is great fun, but. Suddenly, I had that moment of, you know, being catapulted through mm. space and time thinking, oh, all these authors I love, the references are there and the language and the rhythm and even the lines, like, of course, it was a sort of fabulous joining of the dots. I love that.
1: No, it's so true, right? I mean, we're all joining a chorus that's already been sung for thousands of years, right? We're not soloists. <laughs> yeah. And yeah.
2: I think that's so comforting as well yeah. when we're writing and I don't know... Because I think all of your novels are so fiercely original and so sort of independent
1: that I don't know if you've
2: ever had that fear of like, has this been done and should I do it?
1: Well, I mean, you know this because um, probably you do this too. You put little homages into all of your books, right? They're little moments that you say, I'm I'm intentionally layering. Mm -hmm. And in Vastor Wilds, for instance, it was Cormac McCarthy or Robinson Crusoe or... um, Proust, even there was a moment. There was a Proustian moment that I sort of layered into the book as well, and you, and you do it out of love because you want those voices uh, echoing in in your work as well, right? Um, I think I'm I'm I'd be more afraid of uh, those homages, those voices not being in the work than than thinking of that I've. Um, worrying that I'm, I'm writing something that's already been written
2: oh that's a really really beautiful way to put it and I love that idea of these voices being our guides and our mentors to yeah. be able to go back and it's a sort of a, a tribute and a thank you as oh, well. absolutely I th- and also I think for readers mm-hmm. there's something really magical I think and what I love so much about doing this podcast is when I meet you know incredible authors and then we're both the fans of the same book mm. and it's such it's so intimate and it's so levelling and it feels so kind of democratic and I think that's it as well as as a writer, when you're reaching out to your reader, and your reader recognizes it, well, like, hey, we're we're on the same team here. You've mm-hmm. got that feeling of being together on the page. Which well, like.
1: it's so democratic, right? I think that um, it's probably the most democratic art there is because the reader does fifty percent of the mm-hmm. work, right? So you're meeting the artist um, in exact quality uh, The artist isn't trying to sort of. Um, be in a position higher than you in any way right they're not imposing the art on you you're actually creating it as you're reading which i find so profoundly moving and wonderful it also means that as a writer i'm writing to my readers on an equal basis they are my my absolute equals they're helping me fi- finish this book um and i love that right because i do sometimes feel as a when i'm sitting at a play, I'm being spoken at sometimes, mm. or um, I'm looking at art in the Tate Modern mm. and I'm trying to figure out what emotional effect it's supposed to have on me. I, I feel like spoken to and not invited in sometimes, right? So, I, so I, I do think books are uniquely democratic.
2: I saw a painting today, um, we had a look around the Tate Britain, and it's a painting I've seen there before, and i recognised, and it's enormous, and I'm not going to remember what it's called or who it's by, and I wish I did, but <laughs> it's really, really dark, but there are these spots of light, and sort of very pale pink among oh. the green, and there's a sort of swamp effect, but you can see flowers, and there's a sort of sense of the light shifting, and I really love it, and I find it really beautiful, and mm. moving in a way I can't quite articulate, and when I thought, what is that? And I looked... And I think it was from. It was inspired by Friday the Thirteenth, or the opening, or like a proper. <laughs> but yeah, a horror. Film. And I'm not um, a big watcher of horror. Are You, because <laughs> there's so much no. horror in your. Yeah. You know that the um, sort of the the alienation and the loneliness of the landscape closing in. Yeah, um, and you, I think you create that horror
1: so vividly. Do you?
2: read much horror?
1: No, no. I, um, I think I have something that's, uh, I think I heard it um, described as emotional synesthesia. <laughs> so like, uh, if I'm watching a horror movie, I'm actually feeling like these terrible things are happening to my body. And if I'm reading a, a horror book, I'm feeling them in my actual body. Um, and I can't bear it. I, I've never been able to watch a horror film in my life.
2: Dear, I cannot watch
1: Wile e. Coyote Fall of a Cliff <laughs> right.
2: without feeling
1: it. And it's briefly yes. like
2: stinging nettles. Yes. It's electricity.
1: I feel that too. That's exa- we must have the same thing. My younger son also has it too. None of us can actually sit in a room when something scary is mm-hmm. happening. Yeah. I have to do push-ups just to stay in tense situations sometimes. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I do wonder how many authors
2: feel that way. There's a writer I really love called Catherine May who wrote Mm. a book called Wintering. I don't know if you've ever... I've definitely heard of it, yeah. ...come across her. She writes about, um, I guess, sort of different kinds of neurodiversity Mm. and she wrote a book called The Electricity of Every Living Thing but it's about the sort of Extreme stimulation and sensitivity, mm-hmm. and seeking quiet, and seeking things that restore her, but also having to make peace with the fact that she's got to live in a world where that's not always going to be mm-hmm. available to her. But uh, she's a really kind of clear, but lyrical writer. and I need to find that book too. Yeah, oh, yeah. It, I'm sure, <laughs> like I said, it, it, um, <laughs> it's a really beautiful new edition of it. Actually, it's oh, has um, got a really gorgeous cover. But yeah, how many of us are reading and writing because we, you know, (laughs) voices and, you know, cartoon characters falling off cliffs. We're like, the world is too much.
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, I I definitely, I do have OCD. Um, It's just, you know, part of my neuro... Makeup, up um, and I do think part of reading and writing is the control factor I mean you can control for what's going on in the in the world in front of you right even if it's in a book if you can put the book down if if it's too much if it's a, a overload like a sensory overload yeah
2: I read a New York Times profile of you which I re- loved and there was a detail that stuck in my head about you writing different books concurrently yes which I thought was sort of amazing and to be able to move between those worlds and those spaces. And is that something that you've always done? I wonder if it's one of those things with sort of split writers in two where some be like, oh gosh, I could never do that. But like, oh, it sounds really appealing because you do, it gets so immersive and so intense and you do need to go and
1: be in another world for a while. Yeah, I think it's um, mostly helpful when I'm I'm having a hard time with a, a specific narrative. I can always go to the one that's actually calling to me, that's feeling urgent, that has some heat to it, you know. Um, but. I, in truth, I do it because I I do I mean quote waste a lot of my work. I mean I write in drafts that I never reread. Um, I put them in a box and then I start over again. And so it's a way of always feel as feeling as though there's something that I will be able to finish. Um, it may not be the thing that is most urgent to me now, but I'm definitely working on it. Right, and I have my fingers in it, and I'm thinking of it. And it, the most important thing is that it's it's sort of brewing in the subconscious and mm. it's the subconscious that does the most of the work right it's the subconscious that's the one set to dreaming through the whole scope of the novel before the novel is written
2: i think that comes back to reading doesn't it that mm. place in the brain that's just a bit more lucid not trying to sort of force anything through i
1: do think so too i wish we had a neuroscientist here to tell mm. us exactly what's going on <gasps> oh <laughs> what would be brilliant is if i could do a special series because i'm actually um
2: it's all very much um to be announced but I'm working on a non-fiction book that is about I suppose the emotions of reading and exactly what you were saying that books are what I've always reached for Mm -hmm. to feel better Mm -hmm. but also I think that now more than ever people A a little bit frightened of books, and that fear of sort of not having the time, and there are so many demands on us. And I do believe that there are some of the people who need books the most might be reading the least, and how to really in the way that I think that until you know relatively recently, the idea that of exercising and moving your body because it felt good and not because it was going to make you thin Mm -hmm. or because the doctor had told you to or whatever Mm -hmm. that sort of relatively novel i I wish we could do the same for books
1: I'm sure you're right I think it's um, I think you're right I think people are intimidated maybe they're not scared but they are intimidated by the idea of not finishing a book Um, there are easier modes of engaging or disengaging from the world right Mm. I mean watching Netflix is much easier you just cue something up and then you push the button have there been any books over your reading career that have sort of intimidated
2: you or anything you've started and not been able to stick with and also I also love to ask are there any books that you haven't loved and haven't wanted to finish and then you've come back to so
1: many yeah so the most recent example is Life and Fate by Vasily Grossman it's an amazing book it's um Russian about World War II and it's sort of a constellation structure so it takes a very long time to understand what is even going on how the characters are related Um, but you just sort of eventually surrender to the book itself it's vast also I think it's like 1200 pages it's an enormous tome and I try I tried to read it for for a while and I just couldn't get into it. Absolutely love this book. It's so good. And then the other one was Don Quixote but I, it's because I kept getting stuck in the beginning. I don't know if you remember but there are these awful poems in the beginning of Don Quixote. They're just like egregiously awful. I've never read it and I think that might be why. I, think,
2: well, I should read this. Everyone says it's great. but oh, It's
1: oh, so oh. funny. It's so wonderful. And it's um he's doing... Metafictional techniques that you don't see again for another 300, 400 years. It's really asto- an astonishing book, um, and you just have to again let it wash over you, right? Like like Moby Dick is a book just to let it wash over you. Um, I love the bi- I love the big door stoppers. That you can get lost in and wander around and that have just wonky structures. They're just monsters like chimeras like put together from the head of a unicorn and like the body of a lion, right? Like, there's no <laughs> rhyme or reason to them and yet they hang together because it's this one single... Voice, um, a brilliant person just uh, smashing it all together. I love those things. I think it's great.
2: I would love to make a whole podcast mini-series with you called something like, you can skip this part, and we take <laughs> the classics, and we say, okay, <laughs> go from here. Okay,
1: that's, I would love to do that. That'd be great. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.
2: We'll be back to Lauren soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen Big Swiss by Jen Began. This is a very funny, very dark story about romantic obsession and death. Greta's house and life are already falling down when things become even more shambolic as she falls hard for the woman whose sex therapy tapes she has been hired to transcribe. This story has it all. Sex, drugs, violence, dog, hipsters and a bee infestation. I loved it. Big Swiss is published by Faber and out now. Now back to Lauren i think maybe dick is definitely a book that i think a lot of us were made to read mm. at some point i think that's such a challenge as well isn't it when we're told this is canon and you have to love this and that feeling like you know this book is smart and if mm-hmm. you don't love it you're dumb i think well, i yeah. really felt yeah. that at school with thomas hardy oh god thomas hardy yeah yeah i was not living my best life
1: like that <laughs> guy. <laughs> I love, I love Moby Dick so much. I, you know, I do think it's um, joyous and funny. It's so much funnier than it And it gives you, as a writer, it gives you license to do anything. Because he does just anything. And it works. I liked reading it uh, this time. So I read it most recently with my friends as a, um... It's kind of a microcosm of America, and it's a criticism of America, particularly at the time that he wrote it, which is just before the Civil War. He's in search of whiteness, the monstrous whiteness, and um, the monstrous whiteness has obviously infected my entire country <laughs> from the beginning. So uh, it is probably the most critical, um, political, classic American book that exists on the planet. And it, like I was not ready to see that when I read it before at 20. 20- years old
2: it's a very terrifying thing i think to contemplate the true loss of innocence when you really really realize the people that are in charge have, have made a mess there's not <laughs> i think there's a, a loss of hope there and also that mm-hmm. it's liberating and terrifying to think oh i suppose it's it's on us. At the moment,
1: which contemporary writers do you think are doing that work? Oh, I was so excited when Jon Fosse won the Nobel. I love him so much. Um, I don't know if you've read Septology. It's, again, a giant doorstopper. It's um, a single sentence, seven books uh, all in one. But it's one of the most extraordinary books I've ever read. It's like an ecstatic prayer. And I cried like 15 times when I read it. It's the most. It's the. It's the closest I've come to a contemporary writer making a mystical experience happen inside my head. Oh wow! It's really. It's
2: Ayahuasca book.
1: <laughs> it is Ayahuasca book. It's like he's like God. I see God through <laughs> Yon Bosa. Now, a book I loved that yes. I was
2: really, really scared of is. Uh, duck's need report by Mm. Lucy Ellman which Mm. is a a single sentence in a mere thousand pages Mm. so I feel
1: like that was my training (laughs) (laughs) I might be ready for septology it's a very strange book so you um, it takes a while to get over your own resistance Mm. to the cyclical nature of the structure Um, but as soon as you just I guess succumb and surrender it, it washes over you like waves it's really beautiful I guess there are parallels as well
2: there with kind of non-figurative art and the way our brains are so desperate to make sense of things and that panic we feel and how to trust that part of our brains that we're talking about that's sort of absorbing and it's not, it's more conscious than anything but it's not perhaps conscious in a way that we recognise, it's not working in a, a linear way. Um, is that i was just that reminds me of something and i might be completely wrong is it in on beauty by zadie smith where that comes up a lot i don't know i don't remember that that book very yeah i I I just remember really enjoying it
1: uh, me too i always enjoy her voice she's she's so brilliant i
2: think i saw you mentioning nw in a i love that book i think that's
1: her her best book but i don't know nobody else seems to think that
2: I really want to go back to it and reading that. And again, I thought, I do remember really enjoying this, you know, loving being. In the book. And I think because I love her essays so much. And oh, her yes. Yeah. Nonfiction.
1: She's just, uh, she's got kind of one of those George Eliot voices to, to bring it back to the beginning, yeah. right? She's like, she's like a honeyed wisdom that you want to swim in. <laughs> it's really very, she's very wise. She's very like, she has like a kind of omniscience even in her essays that are first person that is really unusual. Like she's able to make these leaps that I think are poetic and very, her mind is a beautiful thing to watch i think there's a
2: wisdom and a calmness and it is as though she's she creates a very big space for us all to wander in Mm -hmm. and she doesn't really mind where we stop she's never Mm -hmm. driving at one point and saying this is it and you are here
1: that's true and i love that there's an openness a radical openness Mm. right she she doesn't finish any of the essays with like a this is what everyone should believe, mm. which I think a lot of contemporary writers do to the detriment of thinking, right? I think um to, to make an argument, oftentimes they, they close the argument off, mm. um, but she does not ever do that. And I really admire her for that. That's probably harder.
2: Yeah, it feels especially courageous yeah, yeah. now.
1: I would agree. Yes.
2: And it, I mean, another book that I've never read and I keep trying to. Read and get thrown off as um, Infinite Jest, and it's because <gasps> of her that I want to keep trying.
1: Can I tell you? I We were talking about this book in the car over here, and oh, I read Infinite Jest on my spring break senior year of university. That's how big a nerd I was. So when my friends were out, you know, partying, um, and, and I was by the pool reading this massive, so it's imagining
2: tone. the setup and like, <laughs> woo, is and Boca Raton, and you're there. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I was sitting there like, with the book and my um, my sunglasses and large hat. Yeah, it was very nerdy. It was the most nerdy thing. And are you glad you did so it? So happy because every time I look at that book now, I think of sunlight and Mexican food and, uh, you know, my friends understanding that I'm a jerk and that I'm not going to go out partying. It sounds like you read in all formats, non-audio books. As well, oh, I love yeah. audiobooks, yeah. and
2: I wanted to ask if you had any favorite narrators or books that you feel as though you've enjoyed especially because
1: of hearing oh, them. I'm sure, things. what's her name? Julia Whalen does an amazing job every time. Oh, she she's does, fabulous! She's isn't she. Fabulous. And have you read her novels? I've not yet, even though I know her, and she did *Fates <gasps> and Furies*. You know, I, know, so cool. I know, well, I know, I know.
2: And please. Tell her I'm a massive fan. Oh, really? Okay. Because um, I know she did a a book I love, um, really good actually, by Monica Heisey, as well, okay. which I think she did in a sort of fabulous and funny way. And I've not read The Oxford Year, and there's a second novel that she wrote, and it's really meta, and it's about, um, it's a rom-com about actors who do romance audiobooks. books, wow. And it's really smart and really, really fun, and it's got so many layers to it, <sighs> and it's one of those books. It's so so charming and so knowing, and Good. it does that gorgeous kind of Emily Henry thing of saying, "I know you know what the what the rhythms and the, the what the beat of the story is going to be. Let's just enjoy it together." Oh wow! Okay, and it really I can't has wait fun to with read
1: it. it. I should read it. I feel really bad now. Thanks for <laughs> listening. I think it's cool. Well, thank you. Thanks. So. <laughs> thank you for listening. I will look it up. They probably have it here in this bookstore. I'm sure, they have it here. <laughs> It's so fun to be in a bookstore. Do you have any favorites,
2: favorite bookstores?
1: Favorite, oh, there's so many favorite bookstores. Yeah, absolutely. I um, In the US, I love Books and Books in Coral Gables, which is in Miami. Uh, I love McNally Jackson in New York. Um, there are too many to name, but here I really like Daunt Books uh, a lot. Daunt's so lovely. Really. Daunt's so lovely. I love
2: McNally Jackson too. I've not been in New York in a long time, yeah. but I would... I've been there before and my favourite thing to do is to sort of spend an embarrassing amount of money on a shiny, lovely book that um, I I bought this. Book, it's it's a hardback and it was expensive and it had a sort of very Hockney-esque cover and it was all like seventies, like swimming pools in (laughs) somewhere in sort of Southern California. And I think it was quite a serious, an academic book about kind of Playboy and pop pornography. Like, Where did that book go? (laughs) But I remember going to, um, Cafe Gitan afterwards and having my avocado toast like a great big tourist and thinking, I'm doing, this is my, This is my holiday. This is a treat.
1: That's what... Everywhere I go, I go to the bookstore first. We were just in Lisbon, and I went to that... I can't remember the name of it. Can you remember? Oh. That incredible bookstore. That's just... It's in that old warehouse. Warehouse
2: oh and sorry I'm thinking of a different bookstore in a different place in Portugal so no I don't think I know this are you one. thinking of that really gorgeous one like the most beautiful bookstore in Porto. the one- yes you yeah, are that I think are. has yeah. a sort of yeah. now has a tan style and I think that please don't come in and just you know put this on TikTok and oh, don't really? buy a book
1: oh <laughs> <laughs> to come in you must buy a book <laughs> that's the entry fee yeah that's so fun no I don't have a a favorite they're all my favorite I <laughs> think that's the that's the best <laughs> answer
2: have you been to Ann Patchett's? And, um,
1: yeah, I was just there actually. <gasps> yeah, and I love her. I love the dogs. She um, she always brings the dogs. Uh, and you, at one point for Matrix, I got to sit with a dog on my lap as oh, Anne interviewed me wow. with a dog on her lap, which was the most joyous thing of all times. Amazing. If I had a bookstore, there it'd be dog friendly for sure. I have
2: zoomed with Sparky. And you I have, have? That's zoomed good with it Sparky. It's very exciting, Dave. My is. friend, um, the writer, Nina Dibby, who's really mm-hmm. great and really funny, took a screenshot of just sort of, on one side it was sparky, and on the other side it was just my face doing a sort of McCorby Culkin-esque, like... Oh!
1: <laughs> <laughs> I met a dog last night um, in Manchester. Uh, what was his name? Buzz, and he he did part of my interview last night. It was really lovely. Buzz the Pomeranian. Oh, it's did Buzz have
2: great questions? They than my questions.
1: Properly. Well, no, he had no questions. It was a very difficult interview. <laughs> <laughs> No, no lot of snarling us. and growling. <laughs> Amazing. You yeah. have dogs, right? I have one dog. Her name is Olive and oh. she's the best. She's a labradoodle. She's very chill now. She's eight. They were they're a mess early on. Do you ever talk through books with olive oh you're out walking is that how you think through oh she hates it so i actually um often when i can't write i will read and sometimes i read poetry and of course you have to read poetry out loud Mm. and you can't just read it out loud to the air you have to read it to the only animate creature in the room which is olive and so i look at olive and i read poetry to her and she gets up very gently and leaves the room <laughs> follow her through the house you're not reading her those poems from don quixote are you no god never <laughs> no thought. but you know you sh- a little emily dickinson goes a long way to a dog other than emily dickinson um who do you read i often think i've
2: always always say this
1: like poetry i love poetry why do i read it so rarely yeah, uh, I, I like to read it um, often just because they're small books that really give you tools for your own work. Um, so Kaveh Akbar is really great. He has a new novel coming out called Martyr. It's amazing. It's so good. Oh. It's coming out in January. Um, Ada Limon, who's our new uh, poet laureate, in the u.s um she's not strictly a poet even though i i think she is um but emily wilson who did the the new iliad um and she did the odyssey she's unbelievable when it comes to her ear nobody's better than emily and and she's doing translation at the same time i don't even know how she does it she's genius it's incredible there are a lot of people. I love a lot of poetry.
2: Oh, there are some fabulous recommendations there. I'm so fascinated by translators as well. Mm-hmm. I met an author at the weekend. But he's writing a book about um, Shakespeare in translation Ooh. in different places. Oh, that's interesting. And because I wanted to know whether there were any countries that were kind of, they've, who has Shakespeare sort of the most relatively recently. Yeah. And you're saying what does tend to happen is everyone... Everyone does the biggie straight away and you'll have sort of, you know, five Romeo and Juliet's knocking about and ten hamlets. But people are slow to do kind of, you know, which is a third part too.
1: That's right. Yeah. The tricky history. Yeah. 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 I mean, I've read all of, in order to write Pastor, I read all of Shakespeare and there are, it gave me a lot of heart that even Shakespeare could write a bad play. (laughs) There's some pretty bad plays there too. I know it sounds terrible to say, but Pericles, quite bad. (laughs)
2: because I vaguely remember and I might have this wrong because I think I only read Pericles because I was assigned it I'm not sure I would have got to it but I do remember is there a lot of Pericles that kind of became a tempest I I don't know I I feel like it's about a man and his daughter in a a drowning or a shipwrecking
0: I hated it so much
2: is that very violent
1: I don't even remember. I'll be honest. But I didn't I did, like but, it, so I didn't. I put it out of I my mind. I love this idea and
2: I love it with <laughs> contemporary writers as well. But when yeah. you see and you read early work, and you're like, yeah. "Oh, you're working through this," right? That's the genesis of right. something. I love Katherine Heine, and her. Yeah. I think her short story collection *Single Carefree Mellow, came up first, huh. and you can sort of see that in her novels. And it's mm. like notes and outlines of things that are going to become bigger. Oh, interesting. Bigger, and I think, oh.
1: I do. I like to like to to be a completist for writers because I like to trace their development over time. Like I think someone who is really interesting that way is Rachel Cusk mm. because because of the way she had that immense like earthquake halfway through and decided to do the outline style, and that's what she's doing now, and she's sort of she. Um, it's it's kind of astonishing what she did because she was I mean she, she's a great writer now she was a great writer before when she was doing more plot driven stuff uh I think it's fascinating really fascinating yeah. and I think really
2: encouraging as yeah. well I love the idea that we can all just throw out the window and do something completely completely dramatically yes. unexpected make a real departure
1: Right? We all should probably at one point. Have a midlife crisis. Go right. off in the auto-fiction area. <laughs>
2: right, space operas in Western.
1: Which is <laughs> opera operas. I would do that in a heartbeat.
2: I feel like
1: your work is made
2: for opera. I think
1: that would be Thank incredible. you for saying that. I actually wrote Fates and Furies as an opera, to, like as a, like a, a novel opera. I would love for it to be an opera. I tried to approach a couple of... Um, Opera composers and they didn't want anything to do with it, but I would love for that to happen. Oh, I mean,
2: that, like, we must have someone I listening mean- who <laughs> could compose an opera because they're just so lush and so dramatic and so, you know.
1: For the stage. Oh, I, I grew up in Cooperstown, New York, which has nothing in it, but it does have an amazing opera house. And every summer, it's for young artists. They come and they sort of they do their first major roles, their first, you know, Queen of the Nights uh, here at this relatively small country opera house that only seats, I want to say, a thousand people. But it's the productions are incredible. And then when you are a kid. Who lived in town? Mm. Um, you could just get tickets for no money at all. I went to like five operas a year when I was like a little kid, and um, you know, it'd be one was mm. like, uh, of course, like musicals, but *Pirates of Penzance* is a light opera, mm. right? And and then all the way through to really intense, very strange, modern things that I didn't understand at all. Uh, mm. So it's it's kind of it was extraordinary, and that went deep into my work for and sure. You, you
2: go because it's it's on, and I've heard people who mm. make movies you talk about growing up. Up and you know all there was to do was like there was a very small yeah. movie that sort of just show the same two films over and over again for a month and then and you know and not new films and just what right. they could, and that those are now the you know are great directors because
1: they yeah. Yeah. yeah,
2: they fell into an obsession.
1: There's something about um, being screamed at by a, a person with incredible vocal power <laughs> that really can like, like drill a narrative <laughs> into you. Um, so yeah, no, it's it was foundational to my to my artistic life for sure. Is the opera house still there? Yeah, it's called Glimmerglass. It's me- it's spectacular. It's it's my favorite place. Yeah.
2: I love that so much because I think especially here you know I think oh how wouldn't it be lovely to go to the opera and I think that because I've I've seen a couple and loved them and not sort of gone with friends not really knowing where to begin yeah. but there are so many barriers I think but you know in London yes. and it's sort of it's you expensive. know it's sort of expensive money and yeah. time and you yeah. do you think I just I'd need to plan it and know it and yeah. I love the idea of maybe I'll you know go and stay up there for a summer and just
1: yeah see it's probably cheaper than going it's, to the a and Yes it's I very mean, cheap. even including like your uh, your flight your flight exactly or you could go to Berlin which has I want to say four opera houses and they are so inex- I was just in Berlin for, for six months they're so cheap um, you could you have a selection of five or six operas you could go to every single week it's really amazing um, and it's so thrilling too because they they don't just do the standards they also sort of branch out and do some crazy stuff it's really exciting oh that would be really yeah, really fun just go to Berlin for the week How is was Berlin with the uh, writing or yeah. teaching or- I was at the American Academy in Berlin um, so I just had to give one lecture and then listen to my other fellows give lectures it was so wonderful well, I live in Gainesville, Florida a disastrous place right now because of all the banned books and uh, the really severe political climate and everything um, so getting away to Berlin to like a real cosmopolitan artistic place was so wonderful heaven
2: I always just think of kind of Christopher Isherwood still and obviously yes. you know that's a, a snapshot of a, a small a place in a moment and even when things weren't free you could be very free there yes. if you found
1: a way and you had to look oh I love uh, you know the Germans um The attitudes are so beautiful and kind of soft. Like, this is not what we are trained to think of uh, when it comes to German people. But, um, you know, everywhere you go in the summer, there are these lakes where people just strip off all their clothes and go swimming and come out. And the mere fact that there's nudity everywhere makes it not sexual Mm. whatsoever. And it's just really like there's a, a... climate of acceptance and like tolerance that was very strange coming from the american south which has no tolerance whatsoever for any sort of and i imagine
2: so many weird sort of ornate rules that no one actually
1: spells out no yeah no right yes you do not perspire as a woman and that's really hard if you're (laughs) yes there are many many things that happen in um in civilized um, drawing rooms in in the south, that are really arcane and ornate.
2: Going back to banned books in this terrifying time, yeah, it's so alarming for children and adults. Never not being able to to celebrate literature, practically speaking, is there anything that you think a person can do?
1: Well, I do. I think there are many things that a person can do. Um, so I don't know if you know this, but. Uh, the vast majority of the the challenges to the books are come from 11 individuals so it is a um An example of a very tiny minority ruling over the rights of the vast majority of people. So some of the things we can do are um, some states have actually adopted um, a no book banning rule. I mean, we could do that. No. Will we do that? No, it's Florida. (laughs) We're already lost. But um, what individuals can do is make these books available in any way they possibly can. And that could be a free library on their lawn. It could be, donating these books to an organization that disseminates them to children right there are a lot of things we can do and a lot of people are actually pushing back um today i found out this um, bookshop.org i don't know if you have it here we do. okay lovely they have uh, in florida a banned book store so any floridian can get for free a banned book uh, so even people who don't necessarily need the the financial wherewith you know um, money yeah. to do it can get a band book and then give it to whoever yeah. they want to it's really an astonishing thing and it's funded by um, well-meaning people billionaire someone somewhere
2: oh yeah. but thank goodness finally a well-meaning billionaire <laughs> at least we have one
1: <laughs> yeah that's
2: really really heartening yeah, i think and it's that's good. what i love so much about these conversations is i think you know it will prevail and we will oh, prevail. Yeah. This is how we communicate and explore and yeah, share ideas. I just right. read a book. Oh, I don't think I've quite finished it yet because it's got a little bit kind of, it's, um, diaries called, I think it's called, I could not believe it. The teenage diaries of Sean Delear. Have you come across that? Yeah. It's about being a queer teenager in Southern California and Los Angeles in the seventies. And I don't want to misgender Sean, who I think um I'm not sure what their pronouns were when they died I and mean, they died quite young but as um in the diaries and in the book Sean I think at that point used he but yeah it's and admittedly he talks about just how important books and book mm. bookstores were a lot of it was like straight up porn like <laughs> fill, fill, fill all the that yeah. At that time, the freedom to be a, a queer teenager. I mean, I love it as well because, um, don't get me wrong, I love an introspective queer teenage book that talks about, you know, the challenges yeah. and the sort of, you know, the things in kind of Jeanette Winston territory. Yeah, yeah. But Sean delear is having a lovely time <laughs> Um and, yeah, just sort of getting the bus and, like, picking yes. up guys and going yeah. to glory holes and reading. But it's um, a little bit when, he's, um, when they're not in a, a glory hole, um, in a bookshop always. <laughs> uh, are there any books on your pile that you're really excited about reading or anything you're looking forward to over the coming months? Oh, there's
1: so many. I am halfway through Kairos by Jenny Urbanbeck. Um, and I had to leave it because I didn't want to lose it in a hotel room because I've been on the road for a month at this point, and I'm so tired. Um I'm halfway through Libra by Don DeLillo, and it's not my favorite DeLillo. It's okay. It's fine. There's a really good beginning, and then the rest of it is a little, you know, snoozy. Uh, but, but
2: I love that, that <laughs> even Don DeLillo can, you know, yeah, not... Well, favorite writers can't write
1: our favorite books every time. I find that very heartening. It's very wonderful, right? I mean, I I will give him every single chance because of Underworld and because of, um, oh my gosh, uh, White Noise, Mm. right? I mean, yeah. What else? I don't even know. What are you interested in? What are you excited
2: about? Well, like you, I had, and I think it's so lovely when you're away for a little while and you think... Really want to bring this book with me, but when I return, I'm so looking forward to getting back into it. Mm-hmm. So I'm finally, finally in the middle of um, Big Swiss by Jen Vegan. Oh, so fun! Isn't is that a fun so book? Yeah, fun. yeah. I just I love the the wit of it, and it, yes. again, in a weird way, I think there are some parallels with Vaster Wilds in terms of this. Oh. The outdoors and how the outdoors gets indoors, <laughs> and the, we're just talking about the, you know, this beautiful crumbling house she's yeah. living in, like the window, the glass falling out of the window panes and stuff. Have and you gotten
1: to the point where there are the bees in the ceiling? Yeah, yeah, and the honey mm. dripping down. <laughs> it's an amazing yeah i really enjoyed that book a lot i listened to that on audiobook pat thank you so no, much that was, was so much fun I yeah i really, a really really fun. enjoyed so, it this is my favorite kind of conversation is the book conversation <laughs> and just talking about books for an hour it's marvelous huge thanks
2: to lauren the vaster wilds is published by cornerstone and out now your book is produced by dale shaw for new alaska and created by dale shaw and me daisy buchanan To see all the books Lauren mentioned, go to acast.com slash booked and you can shop a selection on our page at bookshop.org. Find us and follow us on social media at whybooked. and if you're feeling especially generous, we would hugely appreciate a five-star review. As well as helping us, you could be helping a new listener discover the podcast and find their new favourite book. For now, I leave you with this from Stephen Sondheim. It takes almost as much imagination to justify what you write as it does to write it. See you next time.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate
1: your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen,